white, sunshiny, relatively cool, but it's still a beautiful Sabbath. I'm happy that everybody can be online for a beautiful Sabbath. For right now, uh, I'm asked to do the open.
pushes at those who are enemies of God and of the truth. So I think kind of like Jonah, there was a lot of emotion and push-pull in the, in the book there with Jonah, trying to control his attitude, trying to do what was right, and yet disagreeing with what God was doing at the time, and he didn't like what it portended. So he went back and forth, and, and God showed a great deal of mercy and patience with Jonah. Not that we want to push God, but we do struggle with ourselves. And as we get into this book, we'll find that Habakkuk struggled with himself as well. The, the name Habakkuk means embrace or embracer. And we'll find that even as he struggled with himself, he did embrace God. He embraced God's plan and purpose. And perhaps that's why that Hebrew name is attached to him. He was a very obscure man. Uh, nothing is known about him. We just have this book right here in the middle of the uh, Minor Prophets that is a message from God and a message in one sense to God because that's kind of how it starts out with Habakkuk. Uh, talking to God and giving his message to him. Now, this was after Nineveh fell, when Nebuchadnezzar was besieging Tyre uh, before Jerusalem fell. But Habakkuk could see that there was trouble coming, and he didn't quite know how to deal with it, uh, just as Noah didn't quite, I know, I mean, Jonah didn't quite, know how to deal with what God was telling him about Nineveh because he did not he wanted to see the Ninevites destroyed, not see them repent, because he knew that God intended to use them as a rod to punish Israel. So Habakkuk sees destruction coming and punishment from God and yet he knew that and maybe he would save them. 
even as the economy and the nation go down around our ears. So this is kind of the scenario that Habakkuk was looking at, and certainly uh, this is an end-time prophecy in the middle of the minor prophets. We're talking about our nation of Ephraim today, the United States, as well as the rest of Israel and Judah, and what God is about to do. And yet here we sit, uh, seeking to obey God, seeking to serve him, and yet feeling sometimes a little insecure, wondering about this whole thing and how it's going to work out. God says it will, but how and in what manner and exactly when, we don't know for sure. So the conditions that Habakkuk was looking at are very, very similar if not exactly the same, really, is what we are seeing today because this is written for you and me. And therefore, it's going to be quite uh, important to us in the same way it was to him, only in greater detail for us because this is the last fulfillment. And this is where it all wraps up. So... We need to pay particular attention, realizing this isn't just ancient history, but it's about you and me. So he saw a burden in verse 1, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. He saw trouble coming, and he's wrestling with God in this book for an answer. You remember the story of Jacob wrestling with Christ and wanting an answer from him, and he held on until daylight and he got his answer now his hip was put out of joint and he perhaps limped the rest of his life as a reminder of his fight with God but God respected how Jacob hung on and waited until God's answer to him came so Habakkuk's wrestling here and he saw trouble coming and he said in verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you of violence and you will not save. So he was going through emotional trauma. He was going through anticipating that God would hear and God would answer, even as you and I are. And as we go through some trials some troubles, some tribulations, some losses. Right here, we are still seeking God and wondering, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? So it's a valid emotion that Habakkuk had and a valid emotion that we might have. Uh, patience is one of God's great virtues. And patience is one of the fruits of his spirit that we need to have. And yet, as humans, things stretch out and we go through difficulties. And sometimes the words will even come into our heads. How long is this going to go on? I think I've said the last couple of weeks in reference to trials and troubles we've had here and the loss of one. But we don't know just how long God will go before he makes a separation. 
And really, that's what Habakkuk is asking for here. But if Israel went through the beginning plagues with Egypt until God, at some point, made an intercession and a difference between the Egyptians and his people. So we've been going through the demise of this nation, through the troubles it's going through, and now since really the beginning of 2019, an increasing trouble in the nation and coming apart at the seams, if you will. And yet here we are still, in that sense, suffering along with it, even though we may be geographically removed a little bit, we're still part of the system and still in it and still dealing with it. And sometimes it might seem to us like we cry out, we pray, we pray, and yet God doesn't hear or hasn't answered. Well, he does hear us, but he has not yet answered in a full way. That doesn't mean we have not had some answers to prayer, that we've not had some help, because I believe that we have. But it hasn't turned around in the way that the scriptures indicate and what we are looking forward to and expecting. So trouble was there. He says, even cry out to you of violence and you will not save. We're living in a more and more violent age right now because of the left-wing liberals. Our cities are becoming more and more violent and more and more homicides are occurring and breaking all statistics of homicides because there is no uh, deterrence much anymore. How long, then, do we cry out about the violence that is occurring, occurring and God will not save? Uh, why do you show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? We look around and we see iniquity everywhere, from the head to the foot in our nation. Uh, it's, you can't avoid it anymore. It's everywhere. The liars are from the top down. And we see this iniquity going on, and we behold all kinds of grievances, and yet nothing is being done about it. It's just getting worse and worse. He says, for spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that, that raise up strife and contention. So uh, we have different groups right now that raise strife and contention and rebellion and cause riots and all kinds of things like this going on in our country, and nobody's doing a thing about it. Uh, we even have some of that ourselves right here, where those who are lawless and are iniquitous, and they're causing spoiling and violence before us in many respects, and they certainly do stir up strife and contention with lawsuits and various things. So we see it on a local level, and we see it on a national level. Therefore, the law is slacked, or a better translation might be powerless. The law is powerless. We have the United States Constitution. We have the law of the land, and yet it is powerless now. Nobody cares. The heads of state, the, the courts 
nobody cares about the law of the land anymore. And judgment does never go forth. So they're making all kinds of false, wild, unlawful judgments, and true judgment doesn't come out. For the wicked does compass about the righteous. Uh, the wicked are in charge. The wicked are doing what they want to do. And they uh, put down the righteous. We can see it on a local level. We can also see it as the so-called Christian religion in our country is being beset with all kinds of negativity. And they are trying to get rid of Christianity entirely. So even though they're not righteous, they purport to be and purport to serve God. But even the name of Christ, anywhere it comes up now, is hated and derided, and they're trying to stomp it out. So he says, therefore, wrong judgment proceeds. Here we are. There's no good judgment anywhere. Behold you among the heathen and regard. Now, God is answering this complaint that Habakkuk has just made. It's a burden in the sense that Habakkuk sees trouble coming, and it is a burden as well to him because he sees that there's nothing righteous and nothing good, and it seems like God is not paying any attention. So that is the burden that he himself is feeling. So, God begins to answer, and they go back and forth in this book. Behold you among the heathen, and regard, and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it be told you. He said, Habakkuk, just kind of back off here a little bit. You see what's going on among the heathen, but I am going to work a work which is going to be beyond your comprehension, though it be told you. Now, we've been reading the prophecies for years and years now, over a quarter century, uh, and we've been told. But when it starts happening, it will be beyond our comprehension, beyond our belief in that sense. It will be such a wondrous thing when God does it. So he's saying, I hear, I know, I have it all figured out. Uh, don't get too upset, Habakkuk. I'll take care of it. So we have our frustrations, we have our difficulties, we have our lack of faith perhaps and belief at times. We might waver a little here and there, and I don't know that Habakkuk was necessarily wavering as much as he was just simply frustrated. And God says, it's okay, I'll work it out, and it is going to be incredible. And God goes on, for lo... I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. So we're going to be invaded, and they will take over our houses, our businesses, commercial businesses, everything. And they're not theirs, but they are going to come in and take them. They are terrible and dreadful 
Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. So it'll be their own judgment. It will be their own sense of dignity that they think that they are important, that they are great, that they are wonderful, and they will be the conquerors. So it'll proceed from them. (laughs) But in a way, they have a right to that because of their power. Not a right from God, but I mean a right to their attitude. We are great. We are wonderful. We are powerful. And indeed they are, because he says in verse 8, Their horses also are swifter than the leopards, and are more fierce than the evening wolves, and their horsemen shall spread themselves, and their horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as the eagle that hastes to eat. Now, they're not going to come on horses with bows. They're going to come with modern warfare. And uh, I think the description here fits that. Their battle horses are swifter than leopards. Now, a leopard can outrun a horse. but And these war machines will, are very fast as well. And they will kill with a ferocity beyond that of the evening wolves. And they spread themselves out and fly as the eagle and their airplanes will be involved as well. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind, and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. So Ezekiel makes it very clear. A third of us will die in battle, and a third will be taken captivity into captivity and a sword after them. So that's what they're coming from, and they'll gather the captivity up and haul them off. And they shall scoff at the kings, and the princes shall be a scorn to them. Our leadership in this country will mean nothing to them. And you already see that. The incompetence of our military leaders and the incompetence of those in the executive branch and all those in Washington is so pathetic that they're already scoffing at them. People laugh at Joe Biden. They laugh at all of those leaders, military leaders included, who are right now firing all those who will not take a vaccine. And they're getting rid of the strongest and the best that we have because they've made a deal, as Jeremiah says, with our conquerors ahead of time. And that's why uh, they already have turned communist, fascist, and socialistic in a mix of all those things. And they are imposing it upon us. So they'll scoff at our kings and princes, and they'll be a scorn, and they shall deride every stronghold, for they shall heap dust and take it. They'll come in almost with no opposition, really. Uh, because our military is so weak and they're ahead of us so far, and they will be a coalition of nations, not just one or two, but many nations involved in this, as Psalm 83 and Isaiah 7 and 8 indicate. They will associate themselves together and overrun the Holy Land. Verse 11 is interesting. It says, Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over, and offend 
imputing this his power to his God. Uh, speaking of the leader of this destruction that is coming, and the one who may even take over for the Assyrian. Let's go back to Daniel 9. Even my margin in indicates there's a tie-in here. And uh, Daniel 11 has always been quite a bit of a mystery about the king of the north and the king of the south and the associations between them and how they fight with each other. Uh, and then it seems to indicate that there will be someone else come in who will take over. I'm not going to go through the whole chapter now. Maybe we will pretty soon. But it talks in verse 20, They'll stand up in his estate, a raiser of taxes and the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, not in anger or in battle. And in his estate shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. So someone's going to take over in a fairly peaceable manner, but he's a very vile person. Now, we know Satan can appear as an angel of light. So here's someone who is vile, uh, directed by Satan, who will come in as, in a sense, an angel of light. You know, when the beast and the false prophet do arise, as they soon shall, the whole world will worship, will follow, except those who have the seal of God. So even the very elect would be deceived, if possible. So there's going to be lying signs and wonders and flatteries. And it says, And with the arms of a flood shall they be overflown from before him, and shall be broken. Also the prince of the covenant. And then he'll work deceitfully and come up strong with a small people and enter the fattest places, the richest places of the province. Then he goes on down. Uh, he'll stir up his power, verse 25, against the king of the south with a great army. And this king of the south will be stirred up. And they'll do mischief and speak lies and then it talks about how they will come against the holy people. And some who have been part of the holy people will have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. So some will turn to the beast, forsaking the holy covenant with God, and have intelligence with this leader. Uh, and then it talks about the abomination of desolation being set up as Daniel 9 goes through after the building of Jerusalem. And some of understanding will fall, verse 35. But the time of the end is coming. Now, this person, the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnifies by himself above every god. So he's going to worship himself as God, and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that is determined, or that that is determined, shall be done. So he's going to do quite well for himself. The times of the Gentiles will be, and the beasts and the prophet 
false prophet will have taken over. He will not regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, maybe a queer, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces. And he'll put himself above everybody, but he'll honor the God of war. Well, who's the God of war overall? That'll have to be Satan, because he's the one that started the first war, and has started really all of them ever since. And the God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. So he's going to come in with flatteries fairly peacefully, and then he's going to give gifts and make peace where he can, apparently. But he'll honor military power. Now, Prince Charles, Charles, as I reported last week, recently said that this man that is coming to power is going to need a mighty military and trillions of dollars. Doesn't that ring a bell right here in verse 38? Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory. So he's a Satan worshiper, worshiping the God of war, and he shall cause them to rule over many, and shall divide the land for gain. We know from further back in Daniel, they're going to divide this nation into pieces. But it is an um, association with feet of iron and miry clay. And that is going to come out, because in here in verse 30, At that time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him, uh, like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen. Now, I, I kind of had always pictured this as the king of the south and the king of the north uh, going to battle against each other. But here it's talking about this vile person who has taken over. And as I look at it today, uh, it appears that the king of the south and the king of the north will come against it. So, uh, cracks in the feet. They'll come in with chariots and horsemen and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. Now, is this the king of the north, or is this a vile person who has... Uh, supplanted him. I want to read this more carefully because Daniel should be beginning to be revealed uh, more so than it ever has been here at the time of the end. It's been sealed up until the end. But maybe we can see more and more as time goes on how this is developing. But notice whoever it is, King of the North or the Beast himself and the False Prophet, he shall enter also into the glorious land, the promised land. And many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. Now, I've used Isaiah 15, 16 and other places to indicate that those peoples may very well be uh, mostly Mormon because this is the promised land, the original glorious land, and when he passes over and overflows 
the uh, promised land, it says Edom, Moab, and the chief of the children of Ammon will escape him. And that kind of indicates to me that Edom, Moab, and Ammon are in the area of the promised land when this happens, and they will escape. Now, there are other scriptures, other prophecies that indicate that those particular peoples, all three of them, are going to be destroyed, but not by this man who enters into the glorious land. He shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. And notice, but he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver. So when he comes into the glorious land, it appears when he sets up the abomination of desolation that God will allow him to take over his treasures, the gold and the silver that are soon to be revealed and used in the temple, some of them, and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. So everyone's going to bow before him when he has the military might and the trillions and comes into the Holy Land and sets up the abomination of desolation. Now, where up there did it say, yeah, verse 40, he'll enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. So he passes over some people and enters the glorious land. That's the part that ties in, I think, perhaps directly with Habakkuk right there. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. So he is not necessarily the king of the north here. Tidings from the north will trouble him. So I think this is indeed probably talking about the beast. Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many against the east and the north. And he shall plant the tabernacle of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. So that is the original Jerusalem that has the former and the hinder sea, uh, between the seas, if you will. Yet he shall come to his end, and none shall help him. There you go to of the book of Revelation and see how the beast and the false prophet will be taken by the nap of the neck and Christ will cast them into the fire. All right, with that in mind, let's go back to Habakkuk. Because he is showing great power here and great destruction. And then in verse 11, it says that his mind will change. He'll have a change of course, a change of direction. Uh, he's going to go after something different than what he was, in other words. And he shall pass over, just as we read in Daniel 11, and defend, imputing this his power to his God, to himself and to Satan. So he's going to offend. But when he comes into the promised land and takes over, he'll be there for probably 42 months, the times of the Gentiles, and then Christ will intervene. <clears throat> so, then in verse 12, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God? So here's Habakkuk speaking again. God spoke until verse 11 and told him that there's going to be this great thing that is going to happen. So Habakkuk,
Habakkuk then says, Are you not from everlasting, everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? You shall not die, is a better translation. God won't die. O Lord, you have ordained them for judgment. And, O mighty God, you have established them for correction. Now, Habakkuk's still having some trouble here with his attitude. He says, he says, God, you're telling me that this destruction is coming. You said you're going to do a wonderful work, and you wouldn't believe it if I told you. And then you talk about all this destruction that's coming. And he says, aren't you my God? You're not going to die. And you've ordained them for judgment, almighty God. You've established them for correction. He says, you talk about this destruction, it's coming on us. What's, what's the problem here? Aren't we the righteous ones? These are unrighteous, bitter, hasty, selfish people who are coming in and destroying us. So we might have feelings about that. He says, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on iniquity. Wherefore, look you upon them that deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours the man that is more righteous than he. He says, aren't we more righteous than the... We may have our troubles, but aren't we more righteous than these people who are invading? And yet you're listening to them and giving them power and strength instead of us. So Habakkuk's struggling with this. And you make men as the fishes of the sea, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them. We just feel like fish in the sea or fish in a barrel, maybe. They take up all of them with the angle. They catch them in their net and gather them in their drag. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Says they're going to they're going to net us just like a bunch of fish. And they're going to be happy and drinking and reveling in our destruction. Therefore they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their drag. Oh, look at the wonderful victory we've had. Because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. They account what they will have done when they've taken our nation captive. And boy, what a booty. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? Are these people going to repent? Are they going to turn us loose? Are they going to quit slaying the nations? These are all questions in Habakkuk's mind. He doesn't quite grasp the whole plan from God. So he raises these objections again. Perhaps out of a somewhat self-righteous attitude, uh, you know, aren't we more righteous than they? And in some respects, maybe Habakkuk was, and maybe a small group of people were. Even as now, God probably has 8,000 that have not bowed their knee to Baal. But for the most part, the church has gone the wrong way, and the nation has grown, gone the wrong way. And you and I understand God has to do something about it. But that doesn't mean that you and I, at times, haven't wrestled with some of the questions here that Habakkuk is bringing. So then he backs off, chapter 2. I will stand upon my watch, and set me upon the tower, 
and will watch to see what he will say to me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. Now, I think what happened here was God told Habakkuk what he was about to do, and Habakkuk had problems with that, and he kind of pushed back at God a bit, and then he thought, wait a minute, I'd better be careful. I think I'd better control my thoughts. I think I'd better not criticize God or question his judgment and what he's doing. So he backed off. says, I'm just going to stand on my watch. <laughs> I'm backing off. And set me on the tower and watch to see what he will say to me. Now, that tells me that he realized he had pushed it a bit. And he thought, I think I better wait and see what God has to say, because he is bigger than I am, and I may have mouthed off a little too much here. And then he goes on and says, and what I shall answer when I am reproved. So when he makes that statement, it indicates that, yeah, he felt that he had pushed too much, and that God was going to have some words of reproof for him. You ever start into something and start to have an attitude, and then you think, eh, maybe I better not go there. Maybe I shouldn't have even had that thought. Maybe I better back off here and rebuke Satan and wait to see what God has to say and not get on the wrong side of things. We have to be careful. And that's what Habakkuk is telling us here, that he had better be careful, as should we because we're in this position right now where he was when he said, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? And then God says, I'm going to do a marvelous work and decrees destruction. And Habakkuk argues with him a bit and pushes at him. And then he backs off and says, I better be careful. I may have some reproof coming. Okay, then God answers. We've got a little back and forth here. It isn't just a straight prophecy like Hosea or Amos, but here we have someone who is in contact with God, whom God is working with, and who has still some difficulties in his attitude. Now that might reflect anyone in the church, and especially perhaps those that God is working with specifically, uh, his remnant, to do what needs to be done. So there's some back and forth. There's some emotion, some prayers, and answers from God through his scriptures in various ways and whatever he chooses to let us know how he feels. So here God says, all right, I'm going to let you know. how You told me how you felt. Now you kind of backed off, and you're expecting the other shoe to drop. Here's my answer. The Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that reads it. Now, God did not rebuke him strongly here. He, in his patience and mercy and love, realized that Habakkuk was struggling with himself and that Habakkuk had realized it and was in a somewhat repentant attitude here when he says, I think I better back off. 
that God was using Habakkuk to get a message across. So he goes back to that. says, I'm giving you understanding and knowledge, a vision. So take this vision and write it upon tables that he may run that reads it. In other words, this is a very important message, and it is a message that is delivered with very little time for whoever hears it, that they need to run. Remember there in uh, Zechariah, beginning of chapter 2, isn't it? Where he says, give this message, this, uh, this plumb line, to a young man, let him measure Jerusalem, and let him run. In other words, God is measuring the church. God is going to cause these things to happen very soon. And he begins to answer how long here in this particular context. Because that was the first question that was asked. How long, O Lord? Now God says, all right, here's a vision. And make it plain, and whoever runs, or whoever reads it, needs to be ready to move, to run, to get things done. Okay? Don't dally. Don't wait. This is impending. It's close. He goes ahead and explains what he means there. Verse 3, For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. So he says there is an appointed time. There is already established by God a time when he is going to move. He has not told us that exact time, has he? Well, he says in Haggai, from the ninth month, the 24th day, from this day will I bless you from this day and forward. And I've looked at that verse now for going on 26 years, wondering is this the year that that has meaning. And so far, it hasn't. But, so I don't know the exact appointed time when God is going to do this, this, or that. Stretch a line on Jerusalem and so on. But God says it has an appointed time. That he's, he's got, he knows the date. He knows when he's going to do what he's going to do. We don't. He says, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. What I'm telling you, the things I've written in the prophecies, the ones things being written in this particular prophecy, are not lies. They are going to happen, but God has reserved for himself the exact time. Now, we know in general, but we don't know precisely. He says, though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Now, from God's perspective... He knows the time, and it's not going to go beyond that. It will not wait. It will not wait more time. Uh, as Ezekiel said, it has come, it has come, it is near. It will not be like the echoing again of the mountains. It's here. And we've seen some of it come, because we've seen our nation coming apart since especially 
uh, the end of 2019 and into 2020 and, and so forth. So we're seeing some of it beginning to happen. It's not tearing. But God is imparting here. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he knows the time. You don't, and it will seem to you like it's waiting. It will seem to you like it's never going to get here. You'll tend to be impatient. You'll tend to wonder. You'll tend to get a little frustrated. That's what he's imparting here to us is, okay, I'm in control. I know exactly what I'm doing. And that's what he's telling Habakkuk. But what what Habakkuk is telling us, because this is a vision from God that was to be written down. So this has been here for several thousand years. And to a lot of people, that might seem like, well, it's Terry. No, it's not, because God knew, even when he had Habakkuk write this, exactly at the time of the end. It says, but at the end it shall speak. And here we are at the end, and it is starting to speak. It isn't come about yet as fully as we want, because we're still wrestling with this destruction that is about to come on our nation, and has already started. So he says, don't be frustrated. Sit on your watch. It'll, take, it'll be taken care of. I know what I'm doing. Then he gives some spiritual advice. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. If we get self-righteous, if we get impatient, if we get vain, thinking we know the answers, if our ego gets in our way, then we're not upright in God. So there's a warning here, not to get vain and self-righteous. Now, God has given you and me an awful lot of understanding that an awful lot of people do not have. Well, we're not to get vain or egocentric about that. We're not a special people. We can be special in our service to God and to each other, but we're not special. We're the weak in the base of the world. That's the ones he said he had called. And since we're called, that means that's what we are. So what do we have to crow about? you got these Chaldeans down here crowing about their power and their might. We have no power. We have no might. We, of ourselves, can do Nothing. It's bigger, by far, than we are. There's not a thing we can do about it. So let's not be lifted up thinking, well, God is showing us things he's not showing others, and therefore we're special. No. Even though we know them. Get it? Even though we know them, these things, we can't do a thing about it. So what do we have to be to brag about? Nothing. But the just shall live by his faith. There's an awful lot said in verse 4. Don't be egocentric in vain and think you're special. Don't get egotistical, but live in faith. That God will do the things that God says he will do. 
the evidence of things not seen. So we have not seen them yet. But God is telling us here, it's not going to tarry. It's going to happen. Don't worry about it. Don't be full of yourself and wait in faith for me to do my great and marvelous work. So that's what the vision is about, is to warn us and to tell us that God is in charge, knows exactly what he's doing. And I have that feeling, emotion, and those words go through my mind fairly often, is I may not know what God is doing, but God knows what God is doing, and that's all that counts. And I have to trust him in faith to do what he says he will do, and I don't need to worry about it. Just walk with him, obey him, and maintain faith and trust that he is the sovereign God of the universe, and he always knows what he's doing and why. We don't know why one lives and one dies. We don't know when something is going to happen or even what is going to happen. He even tells us, I think it's the book of James, don't make big plans for tomorrow because you don't know what tomorrow may bring. You can say, well, we're going to do this and we're going to go to that city and we're going to get gain. Well, maybe so, maybe no. Because you don't control things, God does. But in his sovereignty, I, I am so thankful, brethren, that God has such an incredible mind that he can count the hairs on our heads and not even a sparrow, a little old bitty bird can fall to the ground that God doesn't know it. His mind is beyond our wildest comprehension. He is so far superior and knows everything going on in the entire universe. He is sovereign over everything, including Satan the devil and the beast of the false prophet. And he knows exactly when he will turn them loose, what he will do with them. He knows who they are and where they're coming from. We get little hints here and there, but we haven't seen it yet. But God knows everything about it. And you know what else? He is also the God of love, of mercy, of forgiveness, of grace, of patience. So he knows everything, and he has all the good qualities that are in the universe, no bad qualities about him. And thank God he loves us. All people on earth he loves. And he's working in, with each one in their own time and order. He's working with you and me now because he needed some, way, some weak and base to confound the wise. He knows exactly what he's doing. We don't need to question anything. I might sit and say, why did God do this? Why did he allow that? Where did this come from? What is he doing? It doesn't matter. I don't need to worry about it. I need to assess what he's doing. I need to assess my own attitude and my own conduct. 
as to what God would have me do and have me how he would have me react to what I see because we're all here to learn meekness, poorness of spirit, peacemaking, all those attitudes of Matthew 5 and the fruit of the Spirit is what we're here to do. So everything that God does, whether it looks good or looks bad from a human standpoint, God knows what he's doing, and we know that all things will work to the good for those who love him and keep his commandments. So he is working toward righteousness. He's working toward blessing. He's working with our best interests in mind. So whatever happens, whether it looks good or looks bad, it's working together to produce good and righteousness in some form or some fashion. So we need to look to ourselves and say, how does this help me? be it a blessing or be it a, uh, a negative. How does this affect me? Because we see all through the Bible that God talks about when we are blessed, when we have all kinds of good things, we tend to forget him. So our human nature limits what good God can do for us. Because he knows if he gives us too much... We'll get fat and sassy and forget him. So it is not that he is limited in what good and perfect gifts he can give us. It's that we limit him ourselves in how much he can bless us because we might get fat, sassy, and lazy. That's why he spewed us out, that he might get our attention and cause us to repent. The spewing wasn't fun, it wasn't nice, it was confusing and frustrating, but it had a purpose. So everything he does has a purpose. Now he says, when do we tend to turn to God? When things go bad. And here, Habakkuk saw things looking pretty bad. And he questioned it. And then he said, oh, wait a minute, I better back off, I better watch, and I better see what God has to say, because I think I'm sticking my foot in where it doesn't belong. And then God says, yeah, you're right, Habakkuk, but write this vision down and tell people I am in control, I know exactly what I'm doing, don't get too full of yourself, just sit and wait for me in patience, trust, and faith. So an incredible spiritual lesson in chapter 2, verse 4 of Habakkuk to us upon whom the ends of the world have come. Verse 5, Yea, also, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man. Now here he's beginning to talk again about those who are coming to destroy Proud men, they're counting the spoils when they destroy this nation. Neither keeps at home, who enlarges his desire as hell, and is as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathers unto him all nations, and heaps unto him all people. So here again we're talking about the beast power that is rising up, that passes over in the promised land, and it takes 
over Jerusalem, the temple, and the treasures of God. And he gathers up all people to himself. He tries to flatter them. He tries to take care of them. He tries to win them over. If they can't be won over, then he fights with them. So he has great money power and great military power, just as Prince Charles said. I have no doubt in my mind that Prince Charles knows who this is and knows that he will soon appear and talked about him in a public speech, which was very quickly scrubbed from the Internet. They're not quite ready to announce it yet, and he was getting on the edge of that. Shall not all these, verse 6, take up a parable against him and a taunting proverb against him and say, Woe to him that increases that which is not his. How long? There are going to be those who say, Where did this power come from? How did he get all of that? How is he taking over? How long? So Habakkuk questioned God how long. And here people are questioning this beast and false prophet and saying, how long? And to him that lays himself with thick clay, a protective covering. Uh, you can put thick clay on you and keep the bugs off. Shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite you and awake that shall vex you, and you shall be for booties to them? So it's iron and miry clay, and there are those, even though who worship the beast and the false prophet, who are beginning to look at him and say, you have much, you too much pride, too much vanity, too much ego. You aren't the leader you ought to be. You're not as righteous as you think you are. Because you have spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil you because of men's blood and for the violence of the land, of the city, and of all them that dwell therein. What goes around comes around. So God says, yeah, you'll be in power a certain amount of time. All these rulers, it it's it's, could be a general prophecy in that sense, too. The Assyrian, the Chaldean, the Egyptian, the whoever picks up the sword and thinks he's something. Woe to him that covets an evil covetousness to his own house, to his house, <laughs> that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. There will be those who set themselves up and think, I got the world by the tail, and uh, I have the big house on the hill. Nobody can touch me. They're going to be very, very proud. You have consulted shame to your house by cutting off many people and have sinned against your soul. So God says, all this that these Gentiles are going to do uh, is going to come back on them in shame. And you've sinned, and you will be punished for it. So Habakkuk's getting an answer here about what God is going to do to these people who will raise up and destroy Israel. For the stone shall cry out of the wall, and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. You set your house up high, but it was founded on lying and cheating and stealing, and the very timbers of the house are going to cry out for justice. Woe to him that builds a town with blood and establishes a city by iniquity. Nimrod did, and it fell. 
These people at the end are going to be doing the same thing, and God pronounces woe upon them. Behold, is it not of the eternal of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire, and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity? These people are going to be working for power, for stability, for security, for peace, for their kingdom that they set up on this earth thinking that it's going to last and everything's going to be fine. And he says, it's just vanity. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the eternal as the waters cover the sea. So they will be displaced by Jesus Christ when he returns and the knowledge of God will cover the earth, not the knowledge of the beast and the false prophet and these men of vanity who think they're going to rule the world. And they will for three and a half years, 42 months of the times of the Gentiles. So he says, you can be vain, you can be proud, but watch out. Woe to him that gives his neighbor drink that puts the bottle to him and makes him drunken also, that you may look on their nakedness. Uh, They get drunk on the wine of their fornications, as Revelation 18 says. And they're all drunk on power, they're drunk on money, they're drunk on themselves. You are filled with shame for glory. Drink you also, and let your foreskin be uncovered. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned to you, and shameful spewing shall be on your glory. Let your foreskin be uncovered. I'm going to uncover you down, including your private parts. Your shame is going to be there for the whole world to see. God is going to expose it all. There will be a very indecent exposure that comes out, and God is going to destroy it. What profits the graven image that the maker thereof has graven it? The molten image and a teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusts therein to make dumb idols. No. I guess I would skip verse 17. The violence of Lebanon will cover you in the spoil of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood and for the violence of the land of the city and all that dwell therein. Because you've set up these false gods, these idols, make graven images. Are they going to do any good? A teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusts therein to make dumb idols? Yeah, you're going to look to these things, but they're going to betray you. Woe to him that says to the wood, Awake! I'm going to carve you an idol and say, Wake up! piece of wood and save me. <laughs> That's a big help. To the dumb stone, arise, it shall teach. These idols are not going to help. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all in the midst of it. Be it wood, be it stone, you might pretty it all up with gold and silver, but it's still just a piece of dumb rock. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So he goads them some more here and tells them their destruction is near. Uh, Tells us the knowledge of God, the glory of God will cover the earth. And then he says, 
don't forget, God is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So there's the end of that answer from God. And then we have in chapter 3 a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, upon Shigiona. So he got the point. Uh, he's humbled here. And the faith, and having faith in God, is the answer that he needed. So he says in his prayer, O Lord, I have heard your speech. Remember he said, I'm going to see what God has to say to me. I've heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years make known. In wrath, remember mercy. So he says, I've heard what you've said, and I know you're going to send destruction on the evil. Please revive your work in the middle of all this. When is the middle of it? I guess we'll see, won't we? In wrath, remember mercy. That's his prayer. So what do we say? I see what you've written, Father. It scares me. All these things that are coming down scare me. But please revive your work in the middle of the years. Now, his work was pretty well blown apart from 1986 on. And somewhere in here, between now and the end of all this, uh, it will be restored. Now, in the midst of the years, if you read it in the Hebrew, it says between now and the end. So, revive your work between now and the end. So, not in the middle of, but between now and the end. I think we're way past the middle of the trouble that we have gone through. But it will be revived between now and the end. Now, this book of Habakkuk is couched in end time. It is about these things about to happen and starting to happen. So he needs to revive his work very soon now before the end, which is what he says he'll do. So then Habakkuk continues. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. And his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand, and there was the hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. So Habakkuk begins to feed back to God the power that God has, and to speak of his great, his greatness and his power. So he has come back in faith to trust the God who has done all these wonderful things in the past and says he is going to do wonderful things beyond our comprehension in the future. The everlasting mountains were scattered, the perpetual hills did bow, his ways are everlasting. So he's extolling, honoring, and giving glory to God. 
hey, what better thing can we do than to learn to put our frustrations, our fears, our worries, our questions aside and simply trust and have faith in God that he is the all-powerful sovereign of the universe and he's going to take care of it all. That's the attitude that Habakkuk is coming to here. And he will emphasize it when we get down a little further. Verse 7, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. God made all the people's fear. Was the eternal displeased against the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that did ride upon your horses and your chariots of salvation? Your, your bow was made quite naked, according to the oaths of the tribes, even your word. God just does things, and whatever he said happens. You did cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you, and they trembled. This can be speaking of the physical earth. It could be speaking of the rivers and the mountains and the valleys, the people. The mountains, the government, saw you, and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. People are waters in prophecy. They uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. So people are going to begin at some point, they have at times in the past, held God up. And we should be. And more people will when he shows his mighty hand. And they will turn and worship, and every knee shall bow. But it's going to take all of this he's talking about before that will happen. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of your arrows they went, and at the shining of your glittering spear. No one can defeat God. Then did march through the land, or you did march through the land in indignation. You did thresh the heathen in anger. So he's done it in times past, but here at the end, he's going to do it completely, totally, and everlastingly. You went forth for the salvation of your people, even for salvation with your anointed. So he brings it around and says, you have great power over the earth, the universe, over everything, and you're going to take care of your anointed. What a wonderful attitude Habakkuk has come to. You wounded the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation to the neck. Is that that neck of land that comes out and forms Jerusalem? God's holy hill? Might be, because he's going to pass over and go there. Did you strike through with his staves the head of his villages? They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. So Habakkuk says, there's prophecies that they're going to come after God's people. Read Daniel 11 again, <clears throat> parts that I skipped over, how they're going to come after the holy people, and some will uh, knuckle under. <clears throat> you did walk through the sea with your horses, through the heap of great waters. God is awesome, he say. When I heard, my belly trembled. <laughs> my lips quivered at the voice 
entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. Had he read Isaiah 57.1? I don't know. But he's saying, this is so awesome and so powerful and so scary, it might be better if I would just go to sleep and die and miss this day of trouble. He says there in Isaiah 57.1 that the righteous perish, that they not go through the horrible things here at the end. And Habakkuk was kind of feeling that way. He says, man, I see what's coming. This is scary. I think I'll just lay down and say my prayers and go to sleep. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. And then he concludes this very interestingly in verse 17 on, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vine, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. Let me read you a verse that sounds just like that one. Is the seed yet in the barn? Yea, as yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree have not brought forth from this day will I bless you. So here we have in Haggai 2, verse 19, the same thing being said that Habakkuk is saying back here. He says, I questioned, I wondered how long. Uh, I've been through this with God where we've gone back and forth, and he's told me uh, to wait in faith before him. So he says, although I've not seen these things happening, like we have been looking for Haggai to be fulfilled, and we haven't seen these. And God says, have these things happened? Have they produced? Have the fruits come forth of all these promises I've made in Haggai and other places? No. He says, from this day and forward will I bless you. So we are reading that and wondering, when is this going to come to pass? Habakkuk states almost exactly in the same words, the same thought. And the field shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. We are looking at it today, a very, very small group cut off from the fold. No herd in the stalls, just a few of us. Got a remnant going to come. God says they're coming. They haven't come yet, though. So here we sit, helpless. Okay? Well, okay. Let's sit here helpless. When you find yourself in this position that you and I are in exactly, precisely, based on verse 17 in Haggai uh, that we just read. Okay, what do we do? Yet I will rejoice in the eternal. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. And he will make my feet like hinds feet. And he will make me to walk upon my high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. 
he admits right here at the end, no matter what, I am going to rejoice in God and he is going to bless me as he said he will do. There's a parting shot for you and me. All these prophecies we've read are going to be fulfilled. Rejoice in the Lord.